We're in Luke chapter 11. If you would turn with me to Luke 11. If you don't have a, a Bible, you can use the Pew Bible that's, that's right in front of you. It's on page 869. I would encourage you to be there together as we look into the Word of God. Uh, last week, we started this, uh, this new, kind of this new start in this chapter, and, and the, the preface of this, or the summary of what we're talking about last week in the, and uh, this morning is, Lord, teach us to pray. Perhaps no more important activity in the Christian life than learning how to fellowship with God through prayer. Jesus is, is committed to this personally, as he, we see throughout his life, in the Gospel of Luke in particular, Jesus continues to go and fellowship with the Father through prayer, time and time and time again. And so when his disciples recognize the, the distinctiveness of Jesus' life and the way he expresses himself in fellowship with the, with the Father through prayer, they say, Lord, teach us to pray, and, and Jesus is quite happy to oblige. Jesus wants them to understand the significance of prayer, how to do this in the right way. And so last week, we, we looked at verses one to four, the, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, most of us in this room are, are familiar with their, this prayer. But more than just praying a formula, more than just praying these words as in rote memory, Jesus is trying to express to his disciples there's something more important. There's an attitude. There's something deeper involved heart of prayer that, that first looks to the Father. There's a sense of de dependence. There's a sense of humility. There's a sense of reverence in coming to the Father who is hallowed, who is set apart, who is sanctified, who is holy. And so the fact that we can even enter in and, and speak to the Father, we recognize the immense privilege that we have as those who belong to God to be able to speak to God in this way. Jesus will move on in speaking about the Father and, and, and then he moves to give us this day our daily bread and we come to, to understand that all of life is based on the grace of God and pouring out his provision to us. The benevolence and kindness of God, his grace that is poured out on us and showered on us and we, we come to him and we express our need for him in providing for, our, for the basic daily life kind of things. We recognize that as we come to a holy God that we stand as broken, sinful, rebel people. And so we, we say, forgive us our sins. This heart, attitude, this posture of humility and, and reverence and, and coming to appreciate who we are before a holy God and, and recognizing that, that Jesus paid the price for us so that we can even enter into relationship with God through prayer. Jesus made a way. And through the instrumentation of the Holy Spirit, he, he brings our prayers to God and, and he says that he groans for us. He, he intercedes with us for, with uh, groanings too deep for words. And finally, lead us not into temptation. We recognize there are day by day trials and struggles and difficulties that God is designing into our life to help lead us to, to a maturity and spiritual growth. And as God helps to lead us not into temptation, he delivers us from evil. He helps us to see what the Bible tells us in terms of what God expects. And we recognize the Holy Spirit in us helps us to, to do the things that God has called us to do. He gives us the power to obey. 
So we come to the second part, part two, as it were, of Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus is, is continuing to, to broaden this topic and, and not only help his, his followers know the, the right heart posture for prayer, but, but now to, to kind of move into the practice of prayer. What are the mechanics of prayer? How does it look? What does it look like? How do we go about this for ourselves? That, of course, is set against the backdrop of our culture. This posture of humility, this posture of dependence, this posture of of confidence in leaning on the sovereign hand of God is set against the backdrop of a culture who has adamantly defied God and thus is adamantly in a position of having to do what what God has promised to do for us in terms of, of staking their claim, of having their way, of demanding their rights, this entitlement culture. Have you come to, to appreciate a little bit about the culture that we're living in, this entitlement man, mentality, that they make their demands, they, they, they establish themselves, they defend their rights. It's, it's all about them making it happen. That kind of... That kind of posture, while it is in our world, we recognize that since we are moving in the world and, and working and living in the world, that philosophy has begun to infiltrate our own thinking and our own approach to how we do life. This past week, uh, this truth especially hit me square between the eyes. God gave me an opportunity as he often does, as, I, as I'm preaching through the scripture to, uh, to not only know what the truths of the word of God are, but to, uh, to begin to internalize them for myself. If you've ever been in a place of saying, I deserve better. If you're in a place of ever saying, well, that's not fair. If you've ever uttered the words, I demand my rights then this culture has seeped into your own thinking. It's seeped into the way that you relate to this world. That was what I had to struggle with this week. As God confronted our family with the situation, and uh, that was rising up inside of me. I, I, I could sense this for myself. I've got to set the record straight. I've got to draw the line. Somebody's got to do something about this. Somebody needs to speak up. There's injustice that is happening. I need to defend what is true and right and good, and this is not it. You ever feel that, or is this just me? This is the entitlement culture that we're all living in, and it begins to, to seep into the to the essence of who you are and to, and to begin to guide the way you think, the way you respond to the life and culture that we live in. And so why is society becoming more and more entitled? I can think of one reason and one reason alone. It's because our society has wholesale abandoned God. And so there is no other recourse There is no one to go to in terms of finding help. There is no one that can be on their side if they are not personally defending their own rights. They have no creator because they have abandoned him. There is no one to come to their defense, to their cause. There is no recourse. But may that never be true of a believer. May our first impulse, our first reflex, 
our first defense is to go to the God who is above all and over all, and we can trust him as the supreme and sovereign God to invade our difficulties and to come to the rescue. Do you believe in a God who saves? Do you believe in a God who rescues? That's what this is about. The reflex of a believer's life is not only to know the truths of what God says about himself, but to put those truths to work. Psalm 46, one to three, bring this right out into the open for us. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, regardless of what is happening in the world, regardless of how those mountains are crumbling and the sea is raging and the world keeps spinning out of control, God is still a refuge. Do you trust in him? Do you believe the truth to such a degree that it anchors your soul and steadies your heart in the midst of every chaos you may encounter? This is the God that we are to believe in. Do we believe in the God who is stronger than mountains and oceans? Do we believe in a God who is in control, that everything in this world belongs to him is an under his sovereignty in control and authority? If so, then the psalmist describes how that life will look in the next few verses, in verses 10 to 11. Be still and know that I am God. The God who is refuge, if you believe in him, if you steady your heart in him, you can be still. You can rest. You can be assured that whatever is taking place in your life is by design and it is good. However difficult, however hard, however traumatic it may seem, that you can be assured that God is in control. And by the way, I love the way the the, the New American Standard translates these first few words. Instead of be still and know that I am God, it says cease striving and know that I am God. Cease striving. Stop demanding your way. Stop pushing through. Start yielding and submitting to the God who is in control. Trust him. He's refuge. Believe in him. That's what a heart that's steady, that's what a heart that has learned to pray will do. There's a, there, there's, a, there's a refuge for us. There's security for us. There's a stronghold that will not be shaken. God himself will not be shaken. Do you trust in him? Do you run to him? when things are hard? Do you find your security in him alone? Is that your recourse? Do we as believers have another recourse that is not like this world where we can ask God to defend whatever rights we may have or we trust him with with whatever situation we're in? That's what this is all about. Learning to pray. Learning to pray God's way because we're learning to trust in who God really is. But there are two reasons why we don't do this as believers. Two reasons. It's not because we don't believe the truth. That's not why we don't pray this way. There's two other reasons. First is, we want things done in our time. 
That's why we don't trust God to pray. Because his timetable isn't my timetable. Doggone it, I want it done now. I don't trust God with his timetable because that might be tomorrow. It might be next week. It might not happen for a month. We want things done in our time. And we want things done in our terms. That's the problem. We think we know better than God. And so we don't pray. We believe this truth. We know it's true. It's in the Bible. All of us would say, yes, God answers prayer. But we don't pray because God doesn't do things in our time or on our terms. That's the problem. So, oh God, please teach us not just to pray. Teach us to depend on prayer as the only recourse for anything in this world. May we find the mighty power that comes through prayer and trusting in God alone, not in working it through on our own power. How empty and futile is that? How silly is that when we apply our power to things instead of calling down divine power? That makes no sense. We have to learn to trust in the timing of God. We have to learn to trust In God's terms, they're better, they're higher, they're stronger, they're greater, they're wiser. Trust in the wisdom of God, the power of God. So Jesus lays out for us in this passage from verses 5 to 13, not just the attitudes now of prayer, which he kind of covered in verses 1 to 4, but now he's kind of working out what is the process of prayer? What does it look like? How, How does it play out? And there are three ways, there's probably more, but three that I want to just call attention to in these three sections. The first, we need to learn to pray persistently. Pray persistently. We see that here in verses five to eight in this parable that Jesus sets forth. It says, and he said to them, which of you has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, Everything in this parable kind of boils down to the the bottom line, the punchline there in verse 8. And and this word that really stands out, this word impudence, is the word that Jesus is drawing attention to. This word impudence is only used here in the New Testament, and it's a a compound word. The the prefix of this word is the word ah or the word not. And and the main word is the word to, to shame. So no shame. No blame, uh, this, this guy has, has no, um, just shameless. <laughs> he's brazen. He's in your face. He, he's, doing, he's doing something that is audacious. Like, who is this guy? What is he thinking about? But because of this shamelessness or boldness, there's this persistence. He's not going to give up. He's going to keep at it. He will not give up. This is the the quality of asking that Jesus is after. And and he draws this comparison between uh, this 
this person who is, is uh, bringing this request to a friend, so a supposed friend, and this friend is supposed to provide some sort of contrast to us of the Father. Meaning, if you guys being evil and wicked and selfish and stubborn and, and lovers of comfort and not wanting to wake up in the middle of the night, if, you, if even you can do what is right because of persistence, then how much more will your heavenly Father who is benevolent and kind and compassionate and, and tender, how, how much more you think that God will respond to persistent prayer? The answer is obvious. Duh, of course. God will respond to persistent prayer. He's so much better than this friend that we see in our story. But I appreciate how Martin Luther puts this persistence. He wants us to understand that prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but laying hold of his willingness. It's not that we have to wear God out. It's not that we have to kind of persist long enough to, to finally convince God, okay, give me a break, fine, I'll, I'll give you what you want. That's, that's not how this work, works. But it's, it's laying hold of his willingness and, and, and we'll continue to, to, to work through this and see this as we move through our passage today. This parable, the story is simple. Um, this man has a friend who shows up in, in the middle of the night. Now, while that was very unusual, it's not impossible to imagine because in that Middle Eastern context, things, it was hot during the day. And so traveling at night, no air-conditioned uh, donkeys or camels during that day, so they had to walk out in the middle of, of everything, and so walking in the heat of the day was just difficult. So it's not impossible to assume that, that he may have traveled at night. And so here he shows up at midnight. And, and it was customary during that day for a good host who's having a friend to offer his company, the guests that would arrive, food. Because after a long trip, <laughs> they're going to be depleted of calories. They need to fill up. Now, my, my grandma was a rock star at this. You know, we would show up at the latest hour, and, uh, and she would get up, out, get up out of bed, and there was always, it was always fresh berry pie. Wow. I love going to grandma's house because of good food. Or, or there was ice cream, or there was uh, um, sour cream and onion potato chips. Those were the, every time I eat a sour cream and onion potato chip, I think, ah, it's my grandma's house all over again. Just this hospitality. This is, this is the context that we're, that we're in, okay? And, um, and through the ancient world, people would depend upon their neighbors, I mean, you couldn't run to the, to the local Meyer or the local Kroger. There, there just wasn't that convenience store to, to, to run to, and, and especially not at the middle of the night. So, so they, they would often depend on their neighbors for, for this kind of help. And that's what's taking place. So this man, this neighbor, needed to feed his guest late in the night. And so in a huge act of humility he decides that what he's going to do is he's going to find a solution by going to his neighbor's house, his friend's house, and getting some help. Now, this was at the risk of ruining a friendship because who does that? <laughs> who goes to somebody's house at midnight and makes demands at their door? Especially not in first century culture. And we see this bold shamelessness is met with a pretty 
pretty strong response. He says, don't bother me. Uh, step away. Uh, go back home. We can talk about this tomorrow when I'm feeling more refreshed. Don't make me work. Don't make this life more difficult. Don't give me trouble. You know, you have to understand the, the cultural uh, structure of homes. And so I have a, a slide up here that kind of shows you um, a portrait of a, of a first century one-story home. And you can see there is no privacy. It's all wide open. So, so the entire family, however many kids there might be, we're all kind of sharing the same space. And so for the man of the house to get up and to make his way to the door, tripping over whoever's in his way, unlatching the door, all the commotion, now this becomes a problem. Especially if you, ha if you have young kids who are having a hard time going to sleep anyway. And the last thing you want to do is disrupt that sleep. So here, here he is. Don't bother me. And in Luke chapter 11, verse 8, he says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, the Greek uses this word not, though he will not get up because he's his friend. And this is a, a condition that, that, that will not, has no exceptions. There are no exceptions to this rule. There is nothing that is going to get him out of bed as it relates to friendship. It's beyond, it's beyond hope for his neighbor. But because of his persistence, because of his impudence, because of his boldness in continuing to knock at the door, then finally, in order to get rid of the nuisance, the man in the house is going to get up and give him whatever he needs. Jesus will draw attention to persistence. Of course, in this comparison, Jesus is not that reluctant friend in the house. Jesus is better than that. But, but, the, but the comparison is, even if you as a broken individual will respond to persistence in this way, how much more will God respond when you persist in prayer? Pray persistently. Now we move from the parable in verses 9 to 10. Now we move to pray expectantly. Pray expectantly. Jesus will say, And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Now Jesus wants to emphasize the certainty of an answer in at least two different ways. Jesus is going to use three different words to, to describe the, this praying individual. This person who is asking, then seeking, and then knocking. And then for each one of those activities, there's a response. For those who ask, they will receive. For those who seek, they will find. For those who knock, the door will be opened. There is this, 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 this response that, that, that is favorable. It's going to happen. This, this promise of God, of Jesus, in, in response to this parable, to, to help this audience understand that when you pray, God will answer. And then, to emphasize his point, he repeats it. He says it again. Notice in verse 10, for everyone who asks receives, who, who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Just in case you missed it, ju just in case you thought you didn't hear quite right, uh, just in, in case you're, you're wondering if, if this is too good to be true, I'm going to repeat it again, and then I'm going to strengthen it because now I'm going to apply it to everyone. 
Everyone who knocks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. Everyone who knocks, it will be open to them. God is faithful. Pray expectantly. And he, he uses these three words. We're going to just key in on briefly. In our asking, I want us to understand it's it describing our dependence on God. When we ask, we, we echo a heart that is dependent on God to answer. This is this word to request or ask or beg. It's the, the seeking of somebody who recognizes their inferior nature in the presence of a superior person, and they're coming as a, as a humble individual to ask from a greater person to help. So, a child to his father, a man or a woman, boy or girl to the Lord himself, understanding that, that, that they have no grounds upon which to make demands. This is a request. By the way, it's fascinating to understand that Jesus will never apply this word to himself because he's speaking to the Father on level ground, not as an inferior to a superior. But we recognize for ourselves that when we approach God and we ask, we see that he is higher, he is greater, he is wiser, he is better, he is stronger, and yet he still invites us to ask. But James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 will help us understand that, that, that we often don't ask. Why? Why is that? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You're not coming to God. You're trying to work it out on your own terms. You want what you want, and you're going to do whatever it takes to get it. Instead of depending and asking and seeking the face of a benevolent God, who delights, by the way, in giving when you ask. God delights in giving. And the truth is, in most things, we feel like we've got it covered, right? We've got a solution. We've already worked it out. We already understand how, how things should, should happen. And so we have a plan, and we work it through, and there's no need really for us to depend on God. After all, why ask? We got it covered. But the whole point of the Christian life is that we humble ourselves before God, and we demonstrate our dependence on him by asking. And when we ask God, joys and delights in giving. Next is seeking. Seeking, which describes our pursuit of God's will. Seeking, which describes our pursuit of God's will. Seek, and you will find. Uh, again, we come back to, to a, now a word that, that, that will help us recognize that there's going to be some time involved. Because any of you who have done any uh, seeking in your house, especially for things that are essential, will know that those things that you're looking for don't just come out when you call them. Like car keys. Like, that would be nice. And I guess there are some little uh, devices now that that's not a problem, right? That, that's perfect. But we want things in our time. And we want things on our terms. So we don't seek because we feel like we already have the answers. We can ask because we already know what God should do. 
So, so why bend our hearts? Why, why flex to what God wants? Why ask him for, for wisdom in, in what he wants to do in the situation because we already have it figured out? So, so why seek? And this word will describe not only the process of our, of our investment, but, but also the process by which we will pursue the wisdom of God so we can pray for the right things. Charles Henley puts it this way. He says, the key to pray according, uh, the, the key is to pray according to God's will. To know his will, we must know his thoughts. To know his thoughts, we must saturate our minds with his word. Then we will begin to experience the authority of God in our prayers. That's how it works. In order to pray properly, pray effectively, we must pray scripturally. We have to know what God says so we can pray God's words. Psalm 119, all the way through, expresses this heart. But verse 18 says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. That is what God does. That's what we need God to do for us. We need God's Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds so we can know what his word says and we can pray effectively. We can seek God's will. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and I can know God's will as I apply myself to knowing God's word. Are we praying? Scripture. We're praying knowledgeably. Let me just give you a couple ideas of what might God want in this situation. How can I pray knowledgeably and wisely? Here are, here are several thoughts. First, what will bring God the most glory? That's what God wants to do in your situation. Second, what will help me grow in faith? Because, by the way, uh, me, my growth in faith isn't an easy course <laughs> because hard things have to happen in order for me to trust God more. If I got it covered, I don't have to trust God for anything. So God will introduce hard things into my life so, so I can learn to grow in faith. And, and, and so when I pray and I'm seeking his face, I'm asking God, God, please help me to grow in my faith and in likeness to Jesus. Third, what will nurture the fruit of the Spirit? How will I have more joy? How will I have more peace and love and patience and kindness and goodness? How will that fruit of the Spirit begin to show up in my life as God the Father is, is working through my prayers to, to cultivate that kind of life? That's what God wants. Fourth, what will show the unity of the Spirit? How, how can I lay down my priorities? How can I lay down in my life what, what I feel is right and fair, how can I lay that down for the sake of peace with my brothers and sisters in Christ? How can the unity of the Spirit flourish in my life? And what will help me kill my flesh? Like, how can God use whatever is going on in my life to help me say no to the things that I love saying yes to? And, and by the way, one of those prominent things is I want my way right now. And so that's what God will do for us. That's why God delights in, uh, in, in the waiting process. In Psalm 27, 13, and 14, 
the psalmist says this, I would have lost heart unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. And he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. God loves to kill your flesh. And so what that means is God loves to stretch out the timeline. He loves to let you kind of sit in the, in the struggles that you're facing so that you can not only believe that he's good and that he can carry you through, he can strengthen you through that process, but, but he can help you understand that God's timetable is best. And I believe that God, God's answers are always better than our requests. Let me give you an example. Some of you guys are gonna be taking tests. Some of you college students are are taking finals. And, and I know when I was a student, often my requests were, Lord, help me do well on this test. Help me succeed in this final, right? And um, maybe God's answer is to give you not a good grade because you didn't study. And so God wants to help you understand that that there's some personal application that's required for you to invest and to steward well the, the information that you have. Or, or maybe you do really well in tests and you love telling people about it and God wants to humble you so he lets you bomb the test so you can understand that um, it's a gift from God that he gives you good grades. Or maybe you apply yourself so much to doing so well in school that it has shifted your priorities from the things that are good to away from the things that are best. Meaning, you should be directing your attention to serving God and loving God and following God and fellowshipping God, but you find yourself captured away in studying and discipline and trying to, to perform, and God just wants to say, you know what, I'm just gonna take that away from you because I want you to learn what's more important. God's answers are always better than what you pray because God cares more about the externals. He cares about your heart. Next, knocking. Knocking describes our commitment. Our commitment. Knock, and it will be opened to you. This uh, word for knocking, if you kind of go back into the parable, you, you recognize that there's this persistence in knocking. There's repetitive nature in knocking. There's this humility that's required in knocking when, when no one answers the door and you're still standing outside by yourself and wondering if anyone is in there listening to you. And there's this unrelenting nature of knocking where I will not go home until you answer. And you can trust that God will answer. So why does God delight in knocking? What's the point? Huh. Why, why, why does God enjoy the process of, of stretching thing, things out for us? Well, it's not because God needs you to inform him of how, of how hard things are in your life. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, he says this. Jesus will say, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles for they think that they will be heard for many, their many words, but do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. You're not informing God of anything. And your flowery words aren't gonna convince God of anything. You don't have to twist God's arm behind his back. You don't have to win this, this debate, as it were, and, and convince God that, that he should help you. 
That's not what this is about. There's something deeper involved. I really appreciate the book, Journey to Victorious Praying. And Bill Thrasher, in his book, gives us some, some thoughts as to, as to why God allows there to be waiting in this process of praying. He will say, first, it is to purify our desires. God cares more about your heart. God wants you to be a person that looks like Jesus. He wants to purify you in this process. It's more than just the answer. God is, is interested in something much deeper, much better than just the answer on the other end. He, he's, he's working you through a process of becoming more like Jesus. And God wants you to prepare you for the answer because sometimes God's answer is different than your request. And, and he wants you to be able to see it and recognize it and, and to be thankful for it when it happens. God wants to develop your life and character. He wants you to be used in spiritual warfare because you recognize that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities and powers, and it's our prayers that help in missions and help in every sphere in which we live because you're not wrestling against people. We need to understand that we need to apply divine help in the battles that we face. It's also number five to bless us with a deeper relationship with God. God cares about sweet, intimate relationship. That happens through conversation. And then finally, to grow us in our faith in him. He wants us to be people who believe. Finally, we move to verses 11 to 13. And here we see we need to pray confidently. Pray confidently. It says, when, what, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Again, this comparison and contrast. Because we know that human fathers generally want to show benevolence to their children. We know that human fathers want to take care of their kids. They want to protect them from danger. They want to minister to them in the ways that they have need. Fathers will do that. Good fathers will do that. But, you know, the contrast is that, that, that we understand that fathers, all of the fathers in this room, myself included, we know we're broken. We know that we tend towards selfishness. We know that we love our own comfort. We know that we tend, I tend, to be really stubborn sometimes. And so you put your foot down, and you're not going to budge. And, of course, every human father is limited, right? We only have so many resources. But, but the contrast is, 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 is of, a, of a heavenly father who is none of those things. And so if a human father who is broken will act this way towards his kids, then how much more will your heavenly father respond out of care and kindness and compassion and benevolence? And of course, the answer is, of course he will. Of course he will. But notice how the Father answers our deepest requests. In, 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 in Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will, when sharing this, this prayer uh, with his disciples, will say, uh, when, how much more 
where will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? That's what we're, what we're familiar with. Here in Luke, Jesus will change it. How much more will the father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You think, hmm, good gifts, the Holy Spirit, hmm, which one would I rather have? Let me tell you, there is no greater gift in the universe than for God to give himself to his people. God not only gives good gifts, God gives himself. He gives himself to every believer who indwells them, who empowers them, who strengthens them, who carries their requests to God the Father, who intercedes for them, who seals them for the day of salvation, who sanctifies them, who is a part of this regenerating process where, where we find in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, we're, we're washed with, with the Holy Spirit. He, he, he's cleansing and washing us and sanctifying us for, for purpose and usefulness that the Holy Spirit is uh, giving us fruits of love and joy and, and peace and patience. He's working Christ out in us. He, he reminds us of the things that we've been taught from the word. He helps to illuminate our hearts so we understand the scriptures. First uh, Corinthians chapter two actually says, we have the mind of Christ because of the Holy Spirit. And we can pursue the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And it's the Holy Spirit who, who gives us the spiritual gifts so that we can engage one another as a body of Christ. Everything we need in this life is present because of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. God has given everything that we need through the Holy Spirit. What a blessing. So what would your life look like? What would change in your life and in my life, if we not only gave mental consent to this truth that, that we learned this morning, but we actually believed it and did it. What would change in your home, in your families, for your brothers and sisters, for your moms or dads, for your extended family? What would change in your family if you came to a place of really believing that God did this, that God answered prayer as we asked that we would receive, that is, as we seek that we'll find, as we'll knock and the door will be opened to us. What if we really believed that God would do this? What if we really believed that the only recourse we ever needed in this life was God himself? So the psalmist says in Psalm 121, he says, I will lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not allow my foot to be moved. He who keeps me will not slumber nor sleep. Behold, he who keeps Israel, he won't slumber or sleep. The Lord is my keeper. The Lord is my shade at my right, my right hand. The sun will not smite me by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will preserve me from all evil. He will preserve my soul. The Lord will preserve my going out and my coming in from this time forward 
even forevermore. That's the God we serve. Oh God, we know it to be true. May we embrace it. May we reflect it in our life. And may it show in a church, a people that have committed themselves to kingdom living and experiencing and enjoying kingdom power because of a great heavenly father. God, will you move among us? Will you do your work first in us and then in the world around us as we seek to introduce them to the mighty God that we serve? In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a good day.